How Media Coverage of Congress Limits Policymaking. This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Advocates and legislators often want to generate media attention for their preferred legislation. But that doesn't mean the media coverage helps pass bills in Congress. Instead, congressional media coverage may turn off the public with stories of conflict-ridden sausage-making and disrupt internal consensus building. This week, I talked to Mary Leighton Atkinson of the University of North Carolina at Charlotte about her Chicago book, Combative Politics, the Media and Public Perceptions of Lawmaking. She finds that media coverage focuses on legislation with partisan conflict and emphasizes process over policy substance. That tells voters that Congress is dysfunctional and full of extremists. I also talked to John Lovett of Wake Forest University about his new Michigan book, The Politics of Herding Cats When Congressional Leaders Fail. He finds that media coverage leads to more intervention by backbench legislators, creating a spiral of increasing salience that makes it harder for leadership to pass bills. Both books are multifaceted. Atkinson finds that congressional reporting is overwhelmingly about process, and that negatively affects public views. I used a variety of methods in the book to draw these conclusions, some of which are about the nature of public affairs reporting and some of which are about the nature of public opinion. So I start with content analysis of public affairs reports that are about legislation in, con- in Congress to um, demonstrate widespread use of the conflict frame. And this is something that has been studied before, right, especially in the context of reports about campaigns. We've known for a long time that campaign reporting really focuses on the horse race as opposed to the substantive policy conflict or or debate that goes on during a political campaign. So I demonstrate similar findings in the context of a policy debate in Congress. And then the rest of the book uses various methods to show how this impacts public opinion. So I have experiments and observational studies that show that when policies are described by the news media as partisan, as rancorous, as a brawl, a battle, a fight, that these things impact how people think about the policymaking process and whether it's working as intended. So for instance, I have two experiments where I give subjects a description of an education bill that's supposed to be under consideration in Congress, and everybody is told in the vignette that they receive what the bill would do. It would expand K-12 through education funding, and everybody is told that this is a Democratic bill, and everybody is told that the Republicans have some concerns, and, and they're told what the substance of those concerns are. So everybody gets the basic framework of who's on which side of this plan and why are there differences of opinion. But some of the respondents are told that this is a partisan brawl and it's a heated conflict and it's going to break along party lines. Whereas other respondents are told that lawmakers are working to sort out their differences. They're trying to reach a compromise. 
And this presence of disagreement and and the the degree of that, right, the, the degree to which it's ratcheted up and described as a battle really affects how people think about the lawmaking process. So it matters to members of the public whether differences are described as, as intractable or whether lawmakers are described as working to overcome their differences. When, when the problem is intractable, people say, the lawmaking process is broken. So I have questions and I'm able to demonstrate that people believe the policymaking process is broken rather than working as intended when the process is described as being really heated and partisan. So the implications of that are that policy opinions, you know, might then be a function of this belief about policymaking, right? And I go on to test that. To what degree are people willing to say they don't want the passage of a policy that has a parts that they like, right? Let's say you're somebody who is a Democrat and you want increased funding for education, but the process is one that you abhor. Are you willing to put aside those process considerations and support the bill anyway? And what I find is that many people are turned off by the process discussion, even if they like the substance of the legislation. So the the broad implication is that policy opinions are more than just a function of the usual suspects, partisanship and ideology. They are also a function of the process by which the policy is made uh, and the portrayal of that process by the news media. Lovett finds that backbenchers can help disrupt policymaking through media coverage. I'm looking at some of the interaction between Congress, the media, and public policy, and really thinking in particular about how individual members can influence that policy process through the media. Now, what I end up finding at the end of the day is that really members can use the media and use that kind of increase in issue attention, focus on issues to sort of stop leaders desires when it comes to when it comes to sort of policy that when leaders want to change policy they're going to have a hard time doing it during times of high high media coverage so really at the end of the day for something to actually work for leaders to really get what they want out of the process and get stuff through they need to have basically all their ducks in a row they need to have all of the different pieces in place necessary sort of institutionally, because at the end of the day, leaders still have major institutional power. It's just that if there are any sort of wavering or variances, it gets that much harder for them to actually sort of get all their people together, because at the end of the day, especially in modern age and kind of over time, media is going to, media is going to allow these members to really sort of expand the topic, essentially, and sort of sort of bring in new perspectives. And so as you get more and more of those new perspectives, it gets that much harder for leaders to get everybody together. Leaders want to pass legislation, but it's harder when it becomes salient. So let, let, let's say we've got someone like, let's say we'll take the current congressional compositions so and Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer. Obviously they want to get legislation passed. Obviously we're right now in the midst of getting the COVID-19 relief bill passed. And so really to some extent, they're going to want to go through the congressional bill process, and they're going to want to make sure that it's, that that bill doesn't get bogged down. They want to make sure that that bill is not, basically, they just want to get it through. They want to get legislation passed. 
They want to get, they want to make sure that they have all the people that they need in the House and the Senate to actually pass that bill. Now, the problem is that with that, when something is big within the media and when something gets more coverage in the media, obviously what's going to happen is that journalists are going to be looking for people to talk to. And sure, they'll start with, you start with Pelosi and Schumer, you start with the leaders because at the end of the day, they're the ones that control all the processes. They're the ones that are going to be sort of the people running the show, essentially. But that's not going to create a particularly sort of exciting story. You want to go talk to other people. And so there are these other members of Congress who probably have different perspectives on what should be in any number of bills. And so when you see this increase in the amount of coverage, what ends up happening then is that more, that more members are part of this discussion. They're going to have different perspectives on how this should work. And really, to some extent, as that kind of continues, you end up with leaders really at the very beginning kind of losing control of the message on the outside. Because at the end of the day, you have all these different leaders, you have these all these different members offering their own version of what should be in here. Still, for the most part, leaders should have that in, inside control. But there are situations where if you're bringing in all of these members with their own perspectives, their own ideas about how these things work, I think they're going to want to sort of push these. And if you don't, if you don't sort of have sort of full control of your leadership, if you don't have everybody kind of lined up and, re- and sort of on the same page, that can lead to you not getting policy passed. I mean, we go back to, I think one good example, one recent example is healthcare. So 2017, you have Republicans are united in the idea that they want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, but they're not united in how they want to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. And so all these different perspectives are coming in. You have on the House side, the Tuesday group, sort of the more moderate members wanting to go one direction. You have the Freedom Caucus, the more conservative members going another direction. And sure, they work that out, but then you get to the Senate and that bill isn't going to be viable in the Senate. And so they're all sort of going back and forth before John McCain, of course, dramatically ends this whole discussion by voting against the skinny repeal. This is just kind of one example of the larger phenomenon at work. But basically, the idea is that if you can't, that if these people are getting a lot of coverage, they're going to get more support. They're going to get more people talking about outside of Washington about what they care about. And so if that's happening, then to some extent, that's going to put more pressure on leaders. And if these people are kind of bringing these things in and you have sort of tenuous majorities, it's going to be very hard to get things passed. Atkinson helps to explain the mechanism. The public can be turned off from policy by messaging about process. The biggest sort of finding from this book and the takeaway is that people really dislike rancorous political debate. They like it so much so that it can lead them to dislike policy proposals that generate heated debate, even when they like the substance of the bill. This is true kind of across the political spectrum. It affects people who uh, are aligned with the party that proposed the legislation, as well as independents and members of the opposition party. So describing a bill as like politically motivated and contentious is a really powerful rhetorical weapon that uh, lawmakers in the opposition to a policy can wield to carve away support for that plan. Atkinson started the project by looking at gay marriage, showing people didn't like the debate. 
it did start as my dissertation. And prior to that, it started, there's a, there's a chapter in the book that's about attitudes toward amendments to make gay marriage illegal. And that was the first chapter of the book that was written. It was initially a standalone project because I was just really interested in sort of the litigation and relitigation of that issue. First, these things were, you know, made illegal with statutory law, and then we had state level constitutional amendments, and then we had federal uh, amendments proposed. And these, this is a really contentious, divisive issue, or especially, you know, in uh, the early 2000s, when the polling data I collected came from. So I just was really interested in whether people ever grew tired of the rancor and the divisiveness around this issue. And I found that they did, that people didn't necessarily become more tolerant of gay marriage over the course of these debates. Their attitudes on that underlying question, should should gay marriage be legal or not, stayed steady. But what changed over time was their willingness to support a ban on gay marriage, even when their underlying attitudes didn't change. And I found that so fascinating. And so that really sparked the entire project. And so I built the dissertation out around that. And when it came time uh, to turn the dissertation into a book, I added additional chapters, but the book looks very much like my dissertation. Lovett started from the story of Jack Kemp and seeing how generalizable it was. This started as taxation and kind of focusing on how individual members can really get their policy priorities passed, even in a case where you have no control whatsoever. This goes back to uh, Jack Kemp, the former member of Congress from, from Western New York, former Buffalo Bills quarterback, former vice presidential candidate, is one of the main actors of one of the largest tax cuts of the modern era. Yet at the same time, he never spent a day on the House Ways and Means Committee. And, and so I found that kind of interesting. And so I started there and I was looking and I was kind of looking and saying, okay, this goes beyond taxes. This goes into sort of questions of, okay, how can members of Congress use the media to get what they want out of policy. Because at the end of the day, you're dealing with these individual members who theoretically, sure, they're there. They are part of the process, but at the end of the day, they're not sort of the power players when it comes to public policy. What we usually think of are your sort of your House Speaker, your House and Senate party leaders, your even your committee chairs. They're the ones that are actually determining, okay, what gets a hearing, what doesn't get a hearing, all these different things. Whereas these individual members, what what do they get out of this? And so for me, that's really where the ideas kind of sort of sort of started. And the dissertation, I I ended up kind of focusing on it in terms of sort of sort of subsidy theory and the idea that kind of that media and, and Congress are kind of providing subsidies to one another. I, I ended up kind of rethinking that entirely. A bit, and I mean, really, I went back to E.E. Schatzschneider, and I went back to conflict extension, namely the idea that theoretically you're dealing with a fight, and now under normal circumstances, we're going to assume that the one who's going to win is probably going to be the more likely is the one that has whatever sort of things would make them the normal winner, whether they are stronger or, in the case of Congress, have all of the policy controls and everything else. And the other one's not going to be able to get anything. 
So how does that other one actually try to win? You expand the conflict. You take the conflict and say, okay, now I, now more people know about it. That leader doesn't need to, if, if going back to Congress, that leader doesn't need to necessarily expand the conflict. Because at the end of the day, they won. If you win, if you win like 218, 270, that's the same thing as winning 434 to 1. So you won. So at the end of the day, really the development kind of was the dissertation, although it is kind of the basis for what we eventually see here in the book, ends up being a completely different character altogether. But he says most backbench members can't replicate that influence. It's always going to be very hard for members to, individual members to influence in, in sort of a Jack Kemp sense. And I think that the Jack Kemp sort of sense, I mean, it's kind of a unique topic, but Really, what's going to happen is, especially especially in the House of Representatives, you are one of 435 members. So it's going to be very hard to get coverage to begin with. So you're going to have to look for those opportunities to jump in. You're going to have to look for that sort of moment where this is actually going to be, okay, I can actually get in here and help expand and sort of help get more coverage of this issue and get more focus on this issue, get more people talking about this issue. And so Senate, you can influence things a little bit more because there are fewer of you. You're more of a national figure. We know some senators generally are going to be more sort of national, regular kind of figures in media than others. So to some extent, there's, there's a little bit of a different effect in the Senate. But in the House, you've got you to act on those, those increases. When you see that coverage increase, when you see that focus go towards that issue, you got to jump in and really kind of push your version of this. And what happens is you get a lot of members doing that. And so that makes it, so you've got all these different perspectives and this is all going out to the public as well. So the public is seeing all this and there's all this confusion. And so to some extent, it is a situation where all these different members are going to sort of, because they're only one member, they're going to find it that much harder to actually get what they want out of the process. They're going to find it that much harder to influence things And that, to some extent, leads to sort of the beginnings. And again, it's it's not always going to work, but it is a situation where the more coverage you get, or the more coverage that this issue gets, the harder it is for leaders to be able to bring all those people back together. And when backbenchers do succeed, it can't be based on media alone. I think I mentioned in the book, AOC and uh, Alexander Ocasio-Cortez and and sort of bringing in Ed Markey as kind of the co-sponsor on the Green New Deals, essentially kind of ensuring that you've got that kind of senior congressional member kind of working to sort of help you push through this process. And so there is room for backbenchers to influence policy. I think the big thing is, it's kind of a lot of it is probably more that inside working with other members, trying to get those things done, happening to meet Ronald Reagan, if you're in the the late 70s, early 80s, rather than simply doing it through the media. Because media, you can stop things in the media. It's much harder to get things to move forward than through simply a media campaign. Atkinson agrees that the incentives of lawmakers and media work together to shape coverage. I think John's findings and mine are really complementary. If you want media attention as a politician, you almost have to be an extremist. You have to be a vocal critic. These are the messages that attract attention and feed the conflict narrative. And that makes bills harder to pass. 
And it, it also makes compromise harder because the news media don't sort of go out of their way to find instances of lawmakers doing a good job and to praise them, right? If you want to be newsworthy, it's sort of better to obstruct than to work across the aisle to get something done. So you're unlikely to hear about lawmakers who are sort of the workhorses of their respective chamber. If you think about somebody like Amy Klobuchar, who's notorious for successfully shepherding legislation through the Senate, she's someone that before her presidential bid in 2020, most people really didn't know much about her because she's somebody who is just doing the work behind the scenes and not coming out to the news media and and trying to stoke controversy. So those are the people whose voices are not being heard. If we did hear more of of their voices, I think we would get a more balanced representation of what the lawmaking process really looks like. It is a slog and it does require diligence and patience and compromise and conflict. And it requires parliamentary maneuvering and all of these things. But that's not always bad. Sometimes it can help us get a piece of legislation in the end that is, you know, better than than what the initial proposal would have been. Important laws get five times more coverage if they are passed by slim majorities. There is this really striking finding in the book that even important laws that are enacted by a slim majority get uh, five times more coverage when they are focused on conflict, right? When they're, when you have a slim majority passing a piece of legislation, you get five times more coverage. And I use David Mayhew's list, uh, first wave list of important laws to, to check and see how much coverage these laws would get during their consideration. So I used somebody else's measure of what is an important law and a pretty good one, I think we can agree, right? And then I looked to see, okay, on this list, you know, we've got laws that were passed by slim majorities and we've got laws that were passed with overwhelming bipartisan support. So how does the media respond? And there are some very... uh, reasonable explanations for the finding that journalists pay much less attention to important laws passed uh, with bipartisan support. And those are related to journalistic norms. If there's a controversy among lawmakers, journalists want to step in and inform the public about the contours of that conflict. The idea is that public oversight and input are needed to resolve the conflicts. Conflicts are also interesting for news consumers, and given the immense pressure, I think we we recognize that journalists and editors are under to attract news consumers, we can't just expect them to ignore consumer preferences. Um, There's simply too much competition in the marketplace for news consumers that you, you can't just give people, you know, dry reports about what happened today on the Hill and expect people to tune in. So there's really good reasons for these patterns of coverage, but the unintended consequence is that 
this skew toward focusing on controversial pieces of legislation means that people are often unaware of the numerous instances of compromise that take place on the Hill. You get so many reports about the pieces of legislation that are controversial and far fewer about the ones where there's bipartisan action. So people think that's an accurate representation of what's happening in Washington, when at times it isn't. Okay, so people think the government never does anything right, that that lawmakers never work together, and that Washington is broken. Then the other implication of that is that people don't get the information they say they want from policy-focused news reports. So people often say that they want to know how a policy will help people like them. There's some problem at the root of every piece of legislation, and the people facing that problem want help. And they want to know from journalists, what are lawmakers doing about this? When the focus of reporting, however, is on the contours of the political debate, it's on the horse race, it's on who's who's gaining uh, momentum, who's the underdog, the thread that people are looking for gets lost, which is how will this legislation solve my problem and who has the better approach to uh, correcting things. And not much media coverage focuses on policy details or solving problems. In looking at a a news database that I compiled that came from the New York Times, I pulled 30 years of news articles that focus on legislation in Washington and the corresponding policy problems that go with them. So if you've got a problem of, say, unemployment, then you want to also talk about what's Congress doing legislatively to try to deal with this. In analyzing that coverage, I find that about a third of coverage of lawmaking is focused primarily on policy details, meaning that the lead says something about what's in the legislation, and at least 50% of the article is spent digging into the substantive details of the legislation. The other stuff that you find in these articles is talking about What's the process? So the opposition party is typically the one that wants to talk about the process and say this legislation is being rammed through without due consideration. We didn't go through the usual committee process. We haven't been able to offer the amendments that we want and so on and so forth. You also have discussion of upcoming elections and how the legislative process plays into who will be the victor in upcoming elections. Um, You have storylines about sort of heated debates if lawmakers are using heated language and sort of attacking one another in their sound bites. There's a lot of attention to that and a lot of attention to sort of polling. So those are the storylines that are more typically used in discussing lawmaking than sort of a straight facts-oriented story that talks about the substantive details of the legislation. Lovett agrees the stories fit together, showing the Congress and media sides of the incentives. I think to some extent, I mean, Dr. Atkinson and I, that we're kind of thinking about similar things in different ways to some extent. That that obviously her focus is very much on as, as sort of the 
the the the process side and sort of how people react to that. And really, to some extent, by these people jumping in, by these new members jumping in, they're creating those fights. They're creating that system of sort of seeing this more as a sort of conflictual aspect because now you're adding all these different sort of ideas to the story. And so to some extent, it adds to that larger um, sort of theme of Congress simply being a conflictual body that doesn't, that can't get itself on the same page because you have so many different people bringing in so many different perspectives. So I think really the, the two of our works really do speak to a pretty similar concept, which is, that the, which is that, especially when we think about media coverage of Congress, it is kind of very, it's very, it ends up being member-focused, it ends up being process-focused, and it ends up kind of looking like really conflictual, and that has impacts, especially for people who might not know a lot about Congress, want people to get, want Congress to get stuff done, but Congress isn't doing it, and you look at it and you say, why aren't you getting this done? And what you see is all this back and forth, all this fighting, all this, these multiple perspectives. He looked across agriculture, immigration, and healthcare to look at differences in salience. The multi-issue analysis kind of gets at, okay, so what are the general trends we're looking at? What, are, what does this generally look like? And across the board, it, it, that we see this, especially when it gets into the, the coverage question, kind of members getting in, we see... Generally speaking, that member that when there is more coverage, more members are getting in, and so. But at the same time, that that really to really understand how this whole piece works, I think I, I realized it was very important for me to be able to take some of these individual issues and say, okay, how does this work under a circumstance where your issue gets very little coverage whatsoever? How does it work when we actually see that change, and how does it work when? You have, always have high levels of coverage, so people are constantly thinking about the issue. And I think in all those different cases, what I wanted to do was really sort of understand, okay, so we have the kind of this analysis and we have sort of the general trends. Now, what does it look like when we're dealing with specific cases? And, and really those cases I was looking at because of the nature of how each one of them works. So agricultural subsidies, very little coverage, immigration, that changing coverage, and then healthcare kind of massive amounts of coverage, especially in those eras where there was consideration for overhauling the healthcare system. So really for me, it was being able to effectively answer the question on as many different levels as possible and really be able to combine those into a, a story of how individual members can overwhelm this process. The changing salience of immigration helps show the usually negative role of media attention. In the first part of that, I'm focused on the uh, 1986 Immigration Reform and Control Act, which of course it still takes three Congresses to complete, but a lot of that effort is happening bipartisanly. And it's really at the end of the day, simply that some leaders are not as on board as others to changing policy until 86, until the compromises are worked out. So starting in 81, you have Republicans taking control of the Senate. And Alan Simpson of Wyoming becoming the subcommittee chair on immigration. Meanwhile, in the House, Romano Mazzoli, a Democrat from Kentucky, gets the subcommittee chair for the sort of for that uh, judiciary immigration subcommittee. And really, to some extent, they just start working out this bill to sort of reshape immigration in the United States. And so it's really a bipartisan effort where the two of them are working on this, and then. To some extent, you have leaders that are kind of stopping things. So you have Tip O'Neill, who's 
uncomfortable, especially with some of the migrant provisions uh, on behalf of uh, members like Edward Roybal and Robert, Gar- Robert Garcia. And so it's really not until 86 when they work out all these issues. So really, it, it, but it, it still works at the end of the day, and it's still a bipartisan effort. You move a decade later, you start seeing that sort of that increased polarization. And you begin to see sort of, especially sort of the splitting between um, legal and Im- illegal immigration. In the 90s, what you end up having is that as that kind of polarization increases, you have the split now between the legal and, and illegal immigration bill. And so there is a, still a little bit of bipartisanship, but especially the legal immigration bill gets stopped because of members who, like Spencer Abraham and Mike DeWine on the Senate side, who don't like many of the provisions in the bill. And then by the time you get to the 2000s, there's still that element of bipartisanship with sort of Ted Kennedy and John McCain working on things. But for the most part, this is all kind of beginning to go away. And really, this issue, especially by the time you get to 2008, turns into the way that you can sort of set yourself up to run for president. So one of the big names in 2008 that's really, or 2005, 2006, it's really influencing a lot of the discussion, at least within the media, is Tom Tancredo of, of Colorado, um, sort of very much an anti-immigration voice. And he ends up running for president in 2008 on this. Now, he doesn't do particularly well in, in, all, in sort of running for president in 2008, but he uses this as a springboard to running for president. And so I think that's kind of an important thing in all this, and really to some extent that Obviously, I don't get a lot into the member motivations for why they do this, because members have so many different motivations. It's all over the place. But this is, especially when you see a more polarized issue like this, it is a way to become a national political figure, especially if you're a member that people don't necessarily know a lot about, like Tom Tancredo. Atkinson says there are reasons to prefer public attention, but it may not work once policy solutions are proposed. Should activists be working behind the scenes and and trying to thwart (laughs) attention, right? One, because that's a very difficult strategy to pull off, (laughs) practically speaking. And two, because normatively, that's that's not what we want, right? We don't want lawmaking behind closed doors where the public and the news media aren't observing what's going on. The, the real goal is to have lawmaking done in plain sight, where the public have a good sense of the true motives of the lawmakers. Are they raising a stink out of really being concerned about the long-term implications of the policy? Or are they making noise about this proposal because they just want to obstruct and score political points? This is something that's really fraught, right? I will say it's, it is a good strategy to focus attention on a problem. Reporters often cover societal problems in a just-the-facts sort of way, which can lead to consensus among members of the public that something should be done to correct that societal problem. So you can get momentum on, you know, there should be something done, right, to solve this issue by attracting news coverage. But my academic lineage will also suggest that you can't then control which solution is going to get linked up with your problem, (laughs) nor can you control exactly how the media are going to frame the solutions that are offered. So, you know, it, it's, it's complex. My, what I would like to see in an ideal world is more substantive coverage of policy debate 
rather than folks trying to create policies behind closed doors. And like I said, creating policies sort of without oversight from the news media is hard to achieve. If you think back to the Clinton era, when a major healthcare reform was being put together, a lot of that was done behind closed doors. The idea of the strategy was to try to come forward with a developed plan rather than have the opposition pick it apart piece by piece before it was even complete. But that led to a narrative of, you know, what's going on? Why are they being so secretive? And who can we get to leak details and this kind of thing, which isn't helpful either. So I think you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, in terms of trying to keep your proposal out of the public eye versus make it public. But she wants to help journalists improve coverage, and she thinks that's possible. I want to say that I'm really sympathetic to journalists who kind of throw up their hands and say, well, you know, what am I supposed to do? Because because I love journalists, <laughs> honestly, and I have such respect for the work that public affairs journalists do. And I'm somebody who, you know, I edited my college newspaper and I edited my high school newspaper and I'm, I have such an appreciation of this work. So I don't want the work to come across as just criticism of journalists For criticism's sake, I understand the pressures that shape their reporting. But I do have some suggestions. And one is to try to connect problems and solutions more. One of the things that I talk about in the book is that different reporters cover societal problems versus government action. So you have sort of features pieces that might talk about rising unemployment and the impact that has on individuals and communities. And then you have a different set of reporters who talk about what sort of legislation is working its way through Congress. I would like to see less of a divide here between sort of the soft news, hard news aspect of this issue. I'd like journalists to kind of unpack complex problems and the complex proposals designed to redress them in a series of articles that connect these things. Because people want to know how government actions are going to address their issues. So explain it to people. News consumers are really interested in the human condition. We want to know about the trials and tribulations of workers and families and communities, and that does attract people to news coverage. So use that frame, right? Use the problem frame to attract viewers and then ask experts and lawmakers, you know, how are we going to fix this? What's your approach? How does it differ from other approaches? Why is yours better? And that's something that if you unpack a complex issue, you can stretch that type of reporting on a single issue out to be a series of articles, not just a one shot sort of here's what's in the bill, right? That's not a dynamic story that can go on for weeks. But if you're unpacking something that's complex and you're framing it in terms of problems and solutions, that has the potential to be a dynamic story and to bring in an audience. The second thing that I would say is don't repeat claims about a broken or rigged process without serious fact checking. 
if lawmakers are crying wolf and saying, you know, what's going on here is unprecedented, an unprecedented effort to sort of thwart our minority input in this process. Well, there are experts who can weigh in and tell you whether this is indeed unprecedented or whether things are working the way they were actually designed to work. So call those people up get those historians and and policy experts on the line and you know ask them and hold accountable legislators who are trying to feed you a line about how broken things are sometimes things are broken right and i think we saw some of that um during the trump administration but it's really hard to alert the public that, hey, things really are problematic and different if you've had 20 years of lawmakers crying wolf beforehand and getting those, getting those arguments sort of passed on without being really pressed on by, by reporters. So don't accept framing from lawmakers that you know, leads directly to the conflict frame. It isn't balanced. It favors the status quo. It's offered up strategically by those who want to thwart reform efforts. So press on it and and try to figure out whether there are legitimate reasons why people are talking about the process. Is the process being misused? Is this an unprecedented sort of violation of norms and procedures? Or are lawmakers crying wolf to try to change the narrative in their favor? Lovett says social media makes that hard. It's easier for backbenchers and harder for leaders. The media has kind of drastically changed. And as a result of that, to some extent, you can create your own audiences. And that has ramifications for leader control in particular, because at the end of the day, if you can create your own audience, if you can get your sort of major large audience And you can get them thinking about the topics you care about, and they can try to influence the process. It's going to be that much harder for leaders to get anything done. Trump is definitely part of the larger general change in terms of the seeking of coverage, but I don't think he's not the entire story. I think that, I, I mean, he's a big part of, I think, what the style looks like for sure. But I think that members, that members were going to go this direction regardless to some extent. And and really, I think, especially when we think about social media and we think about Twitter coverage, I mean, I the recent sort of back and forth between Representatives Marie Newman and Marjorie Taylor Greene over, over a Representative Newman putting a uh, transgender flag outside her office and Representative Taylor Greene putting a sign saying there are only two genders outside her office. And of course, their offices happen to be across the way from each other. And then both filming this for Twitter. I think to some extent, it's giving members opportunities to really sort of expand on everything and sort of get coverage on everything. And so it's not just anymore simply coverage on on sort of policy issues. And I think that has, and so to some extent, you're going to get covered for pretty much anything you do if you, if you sort of, if there's sort of controversy around it and you're, and to some extent, you're able to craft your own audience. And so I think there, I think we're going to continue to see this disruption. I think it's, it's something that, is going to continue long past Trump in terms of policy. If they're staying, I mean, to some extent, if they're staying out of policy, we would assume that maybe we won't see as much sort of lead, loss of leader control there, that really they're just creating their careers. But to some extent, I mean, if they are kind of wading into policy in a lot of these areas, I mean, there is that potential that now you have more confusion. 
Atkinson's next project looks at how media coverage encourages backlash, but also shows that it can be overcome. The new book does grapple with this issue of of real or sort of long-lasting underlying opinion change, right? And when do people actually change their underlying preferences on a given issue as opposed to just responding to what they're getting from the government or what they perceive to be getting from the government? Because those perceptions are, of course, shaped by the way uh, the news media portray government activity. So there is definitely a thread connecting these two projects. The thermostatic response is one that happens through the mediation of the news media, right? Whether the public thinks policymaking is tilting too far in the liberal or conservative direction is impacted by the way policymaking is covered. And I I show in my, my first book that when there is a rancorous debate, people are more likely to think the policy under debate is extreme. If it was proposed by Democrats, people think it's extremely liberal when it's hotly debated. If it's proposed by Republicans, people think it's extremely conservative when there is a protracted partisan debate. So that has the potential to sort of overheat the thermostatic response, not to sort of mix my uh, HVAC metaphors here, but um you you could have the public thinking that we've swung further in the liberal or conservative direction than we actually have because of the way the news media cover lawmaking. But when do we get sort of real sustained change in public opinion? And what we show in the new book that's coming from Cambridge is that people's opinions are sometimes shifted by things other than partisan debate. We have the potential for real shifts in public opinion and underlying attitudes when we have a dominant actor other than the political parties. So when we see social movements, for instance, become a dominant actor, that's the moment when we might not see things break clearly along partisan lines, and we might not see the same type of cycling in public opinion that we would when parties are driving uh, the messages. So what we find in this new book is that with issues of equality, and specifically equality for the LGBTQ community, equality for women, and equality for African Americans, Social movements come in and um, are able to move things in a pro-equality direction in terms of public opinion. And this happens through a process both of individual level change, people becoming more supportive of equality over time, and also through a process of generational replacement where younger cohorts are socialized in a more tolerant and accepting um, and pro-equality environment. And this carries a forward in time as those cohorts age, right? So what we show is that in these instances, there is trending public opinion, not cycling. 
There may be some short run cycles that you see sort of a, with periods of backlash mixed in with periods of progress and movement toward a pro-equality stance. But if you look over a period of 30, 40, 50 years at attitudes towards uh, civil rights for women and minority groups, you find this um, sort of systemic shift in a pro-equality direction. So the thermostatic response is not always the dynamic that is at play. And it is very much connected to the degree to which party conflict is shaping the dialogue, as opposed to other forces like social movements, economic disaster, war, and so forth. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. Thanks to Mary Leighton Atkinson and John Lovett for joining me. Please check out Combative Politics, the Media and Public Perceptions of Lawmaking, and The Politics of Herding Cats, When Congressional Leaders Fail, and then listen in next time. 